delighted to be back in the book of Ephesians. And we're coming back to really the, the, the turning point of Ephesians, kind of the, the heartbeat of Ephesians, if you will. And we're in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 this morning. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. That's found on page 977 of your pew Bible. Page 977 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along uh, from the Bible in front of you. Let me talk to the remaining children in here. We have several children, ages 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, up, right? Um, how many of you children have ever taken a tape measure? You guys know what I'm talking about, what a tape measure is? Okay. And have you ever asked someone else to hold the tape measure and just keep walking? Have you guys ever done that to see how long the tape measure lasts? Right? Aren't you surprised at how long it goes? It seems to keep going and going and going until what happens? You run out of tape, right? There's no more measurements. It, it just stops there. So you think it's long, but it always has a limit. And children, if you're able to pay attention somewhat this morning, that's what you're going to see. Paul is trying, the apostle is trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that the love of God in Christ is immeasurable. That it's like taking a tape measure and walking out your door, out of the state of Missouri or Kansas, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and going and going and going. And let's just say if the earth is flat, it's not, it's round, but let's say it was. And going, and you could keep going, and then you'd fall down, you keep dropping and dropping and dropping, and you're still holding on to the end of that tape measure. And then you leave our solar system, then you leave the Milky Way galaxy, and you keep going and going and going and going. And Paul wants to tell this church, the Holy Spirit wants to tell us, that the love of Christ is immeasurable. It goes on and on and on. It's an echo that never ends. Friends, that's his desire. We're going to be able to, to see that in uh, three points today. Verses 14 and 15, we'll see the apostle's desire. The apostle's desire. And then from verses 16 to 19, we'll see the apostle's prayer. The apostle's prayer. And then in verses 20 to 21, we see God's glory. The apostles desire the apostles prayer and God's glory. Let's read Ephesians chapter 3, 14 and 21. 3, 14 to 21. And I'll pray for us one more time. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's look at the apostle's desire in verses 14 and 15. Uh, what Paul is, is doing here, he's setting up, he, he's, he's kind of giving us a window into his own heart. He's desperate that the church knows the love of Christ to the glory of God in the church and in Christ forever. He's desperate that the church be strengthened by the Spirit in order to comprehend all that he's about to say. Uh, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, this is, this is a very personal letter not the most personal of his letters, but you get, you get a window into his heart for this church. If you know anything about his life, you sometimes can question, how did you have the strength to carry on despite all of the trials that you've been through? 
You see, Paul was imprisoned many times. He underwent countless beatings up to the point of death. He was even stoned one time. He was shipwrecked three times. He says that he had danger from without, that is out in the world. He had danger from within. He had people that were on his team. He called them false brothers and that betrayed him. He said he went far greater labors than anyone else. He had far more imprisonments. He went through rivers. He came up against robbers. He had dangers from Gentiles, from Jewish people. He even said he had danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Through many a toil, many hardship, many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then, this is all from 2 Corinthians, he says he had the daily pressure on him of the anxiety for all the churches. And so uh, a question for, for us this morning is how did he do it? <laughs> how, did he, how did he keep living for the glory of God despite wave after wave after wave? Didn't God see all that he did for him? I wonder if Paul ever questioned the love of God for him in Christ. So what's your secret sauce, Paul? How do you press on? How do we press on to give God the glory? That's what he's setting us up here to do in this immensely important prayer. Uh, Friends, this prayer is so important that we have some unique language here. Anytime you see some unique language in the Bible, you should perk up a little bit. What's going on here? He's saying something that he said that he's saying in a new way. So in verse 14, look down there. We see that the, this is the only time that Paul uses language about bowing his knees in prayer before the Father. In Ephesians 1, he tells the church that he remembers them in his prayers He prays to them that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to know the hope that they've been called to, the rich inheritance that is theirs, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And so I was curious about this this phrase in verse 14, that I bow my knees before my Father in heaven, the Father in heaven. And so in the 13 epistles that he has, the 13 letters of Paul, He mentions his own prayer life roughly 20 times. He uses words like earnestly. And he uses phrases like, I'm praying for you at all times. Or I remember you always in my prayers. But in all his own praying, the praying of his companions and in the prayer requests when he asks others to pray for him, nowhere can you find language like this. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Nowhere else does he say he he kneels and he lowers his head except for this prayer. Now, that doesn't mean he's not doing that on on a weekly basis or whatever. But it does draw our attention to what is he saying here that's different. Nowhere else can you find a sort of lengthy title given to the Father. So what Paul is saying for you here, dear Christian, he's given you a a window into his heart. And he's saying, I really, 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 I really, really, really want you to know this. And that the heart of all my praying for you is this. I want you to hear everything I've written beforehand and afterward, and I especially want you to know these truths that I'm praying for you. And then he gets into his prayer and he tells them what he's praying for them. And so he has this broken down into three spots. So point number two is we see Paul's prayer. If you are a note taker, we're going to break this up in three different spots. We're going to see He's praying for them to be strengthened by the Spirit, to grasp the love of Christ, and to be filled with God. Strengthened by the Spirit, to grasp the love of Christ, or to comprehend the love of Christ, and to be filled 
with the fullness of God. So look at verses 16 and 17. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That phrase there, according to the riches of his glory, uh, Paul is saying this is a prayer that aligns with the glory of God. It starts out here in a like manner as the Lord's prayer. As when the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them first to pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, what Jesus is saying is when you pray, pray with the glory of God at the forefront of your prayer. All of your praying should have the glory of God in it. Submit everything in your prayers under the grand truth that the glory of God is your greatest aim, that the glory of God is your greatest good, and that the glory of God is his greatest aim. And so he's saying, in accord with his will, in accordance with the riches of his glory, I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul's praying to the Father, that the Spirit would work in their lives. You see, the Spirit helps us strengthen our faith. In fact, that's, that's not a good way to put it. The Spirit strengthens our faith. In, in John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. He says, after I depart, after I ascend to my Father's right hand, I will send you the helper. Interesting title for the Godhead. The helper, the Holy Spirit, the helper. What does he help us do? He, he helps us in many ways. He, he convicts us of sin. He shapes our prayers. He helps us follow Christ in faith and obedience. But kind of above all that or really in all that, the main role of the Holy Spirit is what? To bring glory to Jesus Christ. That is the main role. Jesus says this in John 16. He says that, When he comes, he will glorify me. So Paul starts out this prayer praying that they would have strength, to be strengthened by the Spirit. This is is the Spirit's role. The Spirit loves doing this. There's no envy in the Godhead. The Spirit longs to give glory to Christ and to the Father. And that's what he does. Michael Reeves in his book, The Delighting in the Trinity, says that the Spirit shares the triune life of God by bringing God's children into the mutual delight of the Father and the Son. (laughs) Did you catch that? The Spirit shares the triune life of God by bringing God's children. That is us. Paul's very clear we've been adopted into his kingdom. We are his sons and daughters. He brings God's children into the mutual delight of the Father and the Son. And so the Father and Son have been delighting in each other from before the foundations of this world for all of eternity. And the Spirit's role is to work adoption, seal us in Him, and to bring us in that delight. And Paul says it differently than Michael Reeves. Strengthen us by the power of the Spirit. Reeves says... In this mutual delight of the Father and Son, there we become like our God, fruitful and life-giving. That's what the Spirit does. And Paul prays that we'd be strengthened through the Spirit in our inner being, at the core of our hearts, at the core of our intellect, our emotions, our volition, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Spirit, in a sense, is paving the way so that Christ can dwell there. The Spirit will, at the foundation of your soul, dear Christian, build a trust so that Christ will dwell there. This first happens at conversion. And obviously, since this letter is to Christians, it continues to go on. So you can pray for me, you can pray for your, your church member. You can pray still that Christ would dwell more and more in each other's lives. 
Christ dwelling in you is something that happens when you're sealed with the Spirit upon conversion. But it's also something to keep praying for. A faith in Christ will continue to grow deep roots, as the language here suggests. He says that, uh, that you may be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. So I have, I have two bushes that I planted last year, last summer. They're side by side, probably eight feet apart. And um, I planted them at the same time last year. Well, this summer I've, I've noticed one's flourishing and one's struggling. It's the same type of bush bought from the same spot, planted in the same area. They receive the same amount of water. In fact, the one that eventually died received more water than the other one. And they're in the sun the same amount of time. Well, the one that started dying up this year uh, started just looking pale and the leaves started not um, growing as much. And I thought that the dried up bush just couldn't handle the intensity of the sun. But a few weeks ago, I, I gave up on trying to nurse it back to health, and I, I easily pulled it up from the ground. We had some contractors there working on our screen porch, and I, I was going to get a shovel and move it for them, and I wanted to see how, how deep the roots were. So I just went down and pulled up, and it came right up. See, for the Christian, for that plant, the roots weren't deep. And for the Christian, you have Christ dwelling in you already. But by faith, which is often expressed through prayer, your roots can grow deeper. You can be transformed and grow in perseverance in your inner being. And if you want to glorify God with your life, pray that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you with power. So that you would have the power to believe that Christ dwells in you. That you would be further rooted and grounded in love. See, Paul's saying something here. That yes, Christ dwells in you as a Christian, but also that the roots can get deeper and deeper and deeper. And because deeper roots lead to healthy leaves, because deeper roots lead to stronger, bigger branches, able to withstand the scorching sun, the heavy rains, whatever comes at it, this is a good prayer. You see, the Christian being strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit is grounded and rooted in the love of Christ. And this is what leads to a fruitful, faithful, God-honoring life. Uh, Richard Sibbs, a Puritan in um, one of his works, The Glorious Feast of the Gospel, he, he says this about Christ being the epicenter, the point of, of all the scriptures and for the Christian understanding this. He says that if we know more than we have by books and men that teach us, we shall never come to heaven. But we must have God teach the hearts. Read inner being there. We must have God teach the heart as well as the brain. And pause there. I didn't say this, but what Paul's getting at is he's like, he wants you to have an experiential knowledge of the love of Christ here. Not just head knowledge. We'll get to that in a second. All right, back to the Puritan. But we must have God teach the heart as well as the brain. He must teach not only the truths themselves as they be discovered, but the love of them, the faith of them, the practice of them. And only he can do this. He only can teach the heart. He only can discover the bent of the heart and Satan's wiles that cast a cloud upon the understanding only the Spirit can do it. And therefore, in all our endeavors, labor to get knowledge and join holiness and divine grace and pray to God that he would reveal the mystery of salvation to us. Church, this is the work of the Spirit to reveal and to show more further the love of Christ. This is not a mere academic exercise. You can go to many uh, institutions that were founded on the truths of Christianity that started well and somewhere along the way stopped believing the truths. This is not mere book knowledge. I've said before, you can go to Princeton Divinity or Harvard Divinity or Yale Divinity. I don't know if Harvard has Divinity School anymore. 
And you can find many men and women who are more brilliant than most of us here. But there's a kind of knowledge that Paul's getting at that he wants each and every Christian to know and to experience and to enjoy. And that is that Christ dwells in you and that the roots of that can grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Secondly, he prays that they would comprehend the love of Christ. He prays that they would comprehend the love of Christ there in verse 18 and 19. You can't quite see it in your English Bibles, but you see this really easily. Uh, you see it just kind of pops out in the, in the original language. He, he's praying this special prayer that the Spirit would do the work. And then he goes into uh, the reason that he wants the Spirit to do the work so that Christ will dwell in you. And then at the end, he, in verse 19, the second half, he talks about the fullness of God. So here we are in that second point. Um, second point, second point of our second point, to comprehend the love of Christ. So in these verses, is verses 18 and uh, the first half of 19, he prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is he, breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here is that, that word strength again. He's praying that they would have strength to comprehend something or to grasp or to apprehend. It's almost like he wants them to take hold of what is already theirs. With all the saints, with Jew and with Gentile, what is the breadth of Christ's love for you? What is the length of Christ's love for you? What is the height and what is the depth? My friends, Christ's love for you spans all areas of life. You cannot understand its breadth. The length of Christ's love for you, it endures against any attack and can never be separated. The height of Christ's love for you increases to the highest of heaven. And the depth of Christ's love for you condescends from the heights of heaven to the earth, to the cross, and to the tomb. The love of Christ is expansive, is what Paul is saying. It encompasses more than you can understand or know. And then he says in verse 19, and to, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's a love here that surpasses anything that you're able to understand and wrap your head around. So he's saying in a sense that you can't really know it, know it, know it. <laughs> But he's praying at the same time that you can know it. He's saying you cannot exhaust the knowledge of this love here. You cannot experience too much of the love of Christ. What's so weird is that everything we have, especially every relationship, feels like it has its limits of love, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you have had friends where you're like, oh, this is so, so great. And then... You know, either you or, or, or them, just something happens in the relationship and you kind of like, okay, this is as much as we can go. And I'm fine with that. This side of heaven, well, there's just not going to be completely full out perfect love. How many of you had, had parents in some way, their, their way that they love you was at some level just, just stopped? And for many of us who are parents, we, we love our kids. We, we die for our kids. Uh, but, but our love for them is even an imperfect love. Everything has a limit. Even in our own love for others, we have our limits. Even if we're doing it well and we're just tired. But not the love of Christ. The love of Christ goes on and on and on for the Christian. So many of us can doubt this love of Christ based on what we're feeling. And Paul knows that. He's experienced that. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been tempted, likely to think, to remind himself at least, that God really does love me in Christ. I wonder about you this morning. Are you tempted to believe that God doesn't love you 
or maybe that God just only loves you a little bit. I think most of us are here would say, I know God loves me. But how much? Like, when does the measuring tape just kind of stop? How high does his love for me really go? How deep is it? Does he really love me even when I did that sin? Does he really love me even when I was going through this immensely difficult trying part of my life? Back to the Puritan Richard Sibbs speaking about those who who measure God's love and favor by their own feeling. In a work he entitles The Returning Backslider, he says this to those who measure God's love and favor by their own feeling, which to some degree is all of us. As God loved them before, so he loves them as well and as dearly still. God loves them when he hides his face from them. Just as when he suffered his loving kindness to shine most comfortably upon them. God loves you in the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. He loved Christ as dearly when he hanged on the tree in torment of soul and body as he did when he said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then when he received him up into glory, the sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it doth in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds, which hinder the manifestation of the light. So God loves us as well when he shines, not in the brightness of his countenance upon us as when he doth. Job was as much beloved of God in the midst of his miseries as he was afterwards when he came to enjoy the abundance of his mercies. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. Nothing. It's just some clouds in the way of the brightness of the sun. You see, Christian, when you... Go through something and you begin to question the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ for you. This is an opportunity for the anchor to go further down. The anchor will never be removed. But in these moments, pray that the anchor sinks further and further. And that you're less blown about by the winds. That your sails have less holes in them. See, this love of Christ is immense and great and glorious. And Paul wants his church to know it. You see, going back to the life of Paul, this love of Christ, he never got over it. He was shipwrecked because he's going to places to preach the gospel that can save people or to encourage saints that have already been saved. And so we think about the the country that that, uh, Philip prayed for earlier, Saudi Arabia. And part of the reason we pray for them is because we want them to know this love of Christ. Without missions, without someone proclaiming the gospel to them, they can't grab hold of this love. There's no way to grasp the love because they have no idea about the love. And so Paul says, I'm committing my whole life. I'm trying to get to Spain where the gospel is not preached so that... Others might know this love of Christ, the breadth, the length, the height, and depth of love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That's how great this love is. Again and again, it's that treasure in the field where you sell everything you own so you can buy this field that has this treasure in it and hold on to it. It's worthy of giving your whole life to. Thirdly, we see here that he prays that they would be filled with God. He says in verse 19b that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's an interesting way to put it. It doesn't, he's not saying that we are, we become God or anything like that. We, we know that's not true according to scripture. But what I think he's doing is he's getting back to what he already said in chapter 1 verse 3. Look, look back there with me. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. My friends, that's what he's he's getting at here. You have every blessing you need and more. Every spiritual blessing. Because you know why? You've been united to Christ. You are the purchased bride of the groom. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And because of this, Paul knows that you can be, continue to be filled with the Spirit more and more. The fullness of God. Uh, so you can look at, uh, turn over to chapter 5, uh, verse 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, or be being filled with the Spirit. Keep getting more of God. Build your life upon Him. Be built up in Him and experience the fullness of God. Friends, this is what he's getting at. Stare at the love of Christ. The more you stare at the love of Christ, the more you understand Christ's infinite, immeasurable love for you displayed in the cross, you will be filled with the fullness of God. If you're here as a guest and you are not yet a Christian, you're at a very good place this morning. I don't know what your story has been like. I don't know the hardships of your life. I don't know how unlovely you might feel. But there is a love, the love of Christ, where he will look at you. He will know every thought you've ever had, every wicked, sinful, every embarrassing thought you've ever had. He knows, he will know all that you've ever done. And he will accept you. He will receive you. Can you imagine a love like that? We don't have to keep guessing where you are in this relationship. No, his love is steadfast for you. Uh, Dear non-Christian, what are you waiting for? See, Christ is the center of all the scriptures. He's the subject of everything. And so my encouragement to to you this morning is to stare at Christ. Get to know Christ through the scriptures. And then pray that the Lord will enlighten your heart. The eyes of your heart may be opened and you might see the immeasurable greatness of the love of Christ. Friends, that's the good news of the Bible. That God in his goodness and his holiness is so holy that he cannot accept sinners into his presence. And you know, just as well as I know, that we are sinners. We've rebelled against this God. We say we don't want you as creator, nor do we, we don't honor you as creator, nor do we want you as our loving heavenly father. We got it. We'll do our own thing. That's a dangerous place to be. And that creates all kinds of chaos and sin in your own life and in those around you. The good news is that God came. He took on flesh, Jesus Christ, both God, both men. And he died on the cross for the penalty that you and I deserved. And he took on the wrath of God. God's anger towards sin was placed on Christ. And Christ's offering, his good news offering for you is if you come to him in faith, if you believe in him and turn from your sins, that he will forgive you of all your sins. That initial repentance, that initial turning of sin, from sin, is just the gateway to a lifetime of turning from sin and turning to Christ. And all your sins will be washed away. And you'll be united with Christ. If you are here and you want more information about that, please come find me afterwards. I would love to share more of that gospel message with you and even develop, uh, devote some time over the weeks to read scriptures with you. Uh, church, I wonder if you read the scriptures, if you see the love of Christ in every text. Can you find the love of Christ in every text? Uh, in Michael Reeves' book, The Lighting of the Trinity, again, talking about the, the subject of, of the scriptures, he says that when you see that Christ is a subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals his father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Christ? 
Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages you can get caught upon in the wonder of his story, you find in your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you never would have if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. Dear Christian, approach the scriptures anticipating and expecting to see more of Jesus. And then your heart will strangely pound for him in a way that you would never have it if you had treated the Bible as a book to find more information about yourself. The Bible is not chicken soup for the soul. It is a book about Jesus and Jesus' love for sinners. So we just went through his prayer. This is a prayer you could spend 10 sermons on. The occasion here, though, is this. Paul is concerned for these Ephesian Christians that they would begin to doubt God's love for them based on something that might come their way. I've been a pastor or I've been in Christian ministry now in a, in a, in a formal way. We all should be in ministry to some degree. But in a formal way for 11 years. And in thinking upon this text, I was thinking, what in my own life and what have I experienced as I've pastored people and done ministry? What are the occasions for saints to doubt God's love for them in Christ? I came with five, at least five. I'm sure there's more, but five common occasions where saints doubt God's love for them. And I'll go ahead and give them to you up front. Times of anxiousness. Times of loneliness, times of sin, thinking about a difficult past, and fearing the frightful future. It's not an exhaustive list, just what I came up with. Let me just walk through each of these and encourage you, dear Christian, to trust in the love of Christ for you, that your roots may grow deeper and deeper and deeper, that you may bear more fruit. Through him that you may be strong through the storms of this life. Uh, one, consider anxiety. Ed Welch in his book called Running Scared to Those Who Are Anxious and Fearful. He says, fear and, and anxiety are running away from something. So when you experience fear or anxiety, he says, you're running away from something. But they don't know what to run to. Fear and anxiety know they are in danger, but they don't know where to find peace and rest. See, being anxious is like you're always on, constantly. It's like your computer's on, you know, and you can put it in sleep mode. But with fear and anxiety, the anxiety especially, it's like you never quite turn it off. And your wheels are spinning, and, and sometimes it manifests itself, manifests itself physically, and your heart beating faster. You're feeling so much, but you just feel almost paralyzed, like you can't move. Well, the Bible has much to say about this, but uh, dear anxious Christian, know that Jesus is a man who, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweated blood. His soul was so troubled within him. That it says that he physically began to sweat blood so that he could gain you. If you doubt God's love for you when you're lonely, if you ask yourself, does anyone actually know me? Does anyone actually care for me? You could be surrounded by hundreds of people and be lonely. You know that? Kurt Cobain's the lead singer of Nirvana, his biography just came out and I haven't read it. My friend read it and, and he said what was so sad about Kurt Cobain's suicide is uh, he said something to the effect of, I felt like I couldn't live for anything anymore because I was on a stage and thousands of thousands of people were staring at me and I felt absolutely nothing. Loneliness is tricky. And we're not very good at detecting it, I don't think. So when you're feeling lonely, 
you're often feeling abandonment. No one cares about me. No one sees me. No one understands me. Friend, know this. Jesus is a man acquainted with grief. He is a man of sorrows. His his disciples, if you read the Gospel of Mark, time and time again, what do they do? They don't sit by his side. They abandon him. Jesus knows what loneliness is like. Again, going back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, pray for me. Stay awake. What do they do? They fall asleep. Know the love of Christ for you. That Christ can sympathize with you in your loneliness. The third way that we often doubt God's love for us is when we sin. When we sin, we often distance ourselves from God. Right? We feel unclean. We feel like we just did something kind of really naughty. And that God is looking at us with a disapproving frown. Well, what we did was sinful. It was naughty in a sense. It was an offense against God. But have this in your mind. When you sin, even willfully, even when you plan it, say to yourself that Jesus came to save sinners. And in that moment, feel what it feels like to be the foremost of sinners, as the Apostle Paul says. Jesus came to save you. He's not surprised that you would sin. In the same way, he loves you so much, he can look at you, know that you sin, and say, but sin no more. It's not good for you. It only brings chaos and pain in your life and the life of others. But fourthly, in pastoral ministry, I've noticed this especially. That when people have a difficult past, they can doubt God's love for them. This can be uh, in a moment of time in your past. This can be a series of moments But I think this is why we especially doubt God's, Christ's love for us in the past. Is that if Christ is the king of kings, if he's all powerful, if all bow down to him, it seems incongruent that something terrible, horrible, immensely painful would happen to us. If he really does If he really is the God of the universe. He has the power. He has the ability. And yet it seems, at least from our limited perspective, we doubt that he can love us in difficult past. And so what I've seen, what I've experienced in my own life is that we just kind of box that away. I don't really know what to do with that. I know Christ to be the theme of all the scriptures. I firmly believe that he rose from the dead and conquered conquered the grave. But that thing, (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. So I push that aside. Oh, I see it time and time again in ministry. And often I don't know what to do with that. Flip back over to Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that is set apart and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so I read that. I say, it can't mean that you weren't there. It can't mean that I wasn't on your mind. Because when did he predestine me? Before the foundation of the world. So me and you, dear Christian, were in God's mind before he created this earth. I've got a moment in my past that for years, I just kind of, like I was alluding to earlier, I just kind of set aside. I was probably eight, nine years old. 
And uh, I was at my, my dad and stepmom's house. I was sleeping in the middle of the night, and, and I'd often be brought into their conflict. I was a mediator at the age, starting at the age of seven, all the way through age of 10. And so I, I would jump in. I would try to reconcile. I, I was just always on at their house. And I've got this one moment that just sticks in my mind because it was just so painful, especially when you look back at it. Soundly sleeping in the peacefulness of my own room and then being woken up to, to my frantic stepmom trying to tell me how, how bad things were. And then I, I see my dad. And all of a sudden, I'm just brought into this conflict. And I look back to my childhood sometimes. I'm like, dang it. Really? <laughs> that was so difficult. I didn't want that. I didn't ask for that. I can look at my own children in some weird way. I could even be envious of their relatively peaceful household. But Kate and I met with a counselor for just kind of a checkup a couple years ago. And I brought that moment up to her. And she asked this question. She said, well, Mark, where was God in that moment? I couldn't answer her. I didn't want God to be there because I know he's so powerful. And for some reason, he let that moment and other moments continue to happen. I know that I'm on his mind from the before the foundations of the world. I'm predestined. He knows me. He loves me. And when she said what I knew to be true, but was shielding and, and putting off, that God was right there. Well, friends, it broke me down. I can't explain it, but the comfort of God through trials in this life is like nothing else. And I've noticed in pastoral ministry in my own heart that I doubt the love of God for me in Christ, especially in those moments. Now, I might have just tried to open up a bunch of things for you right now, and that's not my intent. At least it's not to just leave it right there. So if that's you this morning, please come talk to me, or one of the pastors, or one of your friends. I would love to sit with you through months talking about this. I would immensely enjoy that and try to care for you in ways and to mainly just point you to the love of Christ in things we can't understand. Because we do know this, while we can't put all the puzzle pieces together ourselves, God knows what's going on. And one day we will be able to say these things, these afflictions were light and they were momentary and they're actually contributing to an eternal weight of glory. And so we will cross that great horizon. We will look back and we will say, praise God. I'm getting more of him now because of that. Friends, trust in the love of God for you in Christ in difficult moments in the past. And lastly, in the fear of the future. In the fear of the future, Ed Welch says in his book that worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. Worriers are visionaries. I can see what's going to happen, but they're pessimists. No optimism there. Friends, you've been sealed with the Spirit. And as Ephesians 1 said, you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. In fact, the love of Christ is going to continue to echo on throughout eternity. And you're going to get more and more and more of it. And you know that the tape measure's never going to run out. That's amazing about this. You see, we were created and then we die, but we keep living because we will be resurrected in Christ. But God has no beginning and no end. So the love of Christ that we experience when we sing songs, when we have rich fellowship, when we take part in the Lord's Supper, when we hear the word preached... That's just a foretaste of the greater love that's going to continue to increase throughout all eternity. And then in conclusion here, friends, he ends this in this great doxological sentence. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's aim is the glory of God in all of life by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is he sustained? By this prayer right here. 
He can do all these things, being stoned, being shipwrecked, being lashed 40 minus one times, three times each. He can do all this, not because he keeps saying to himself, I must glorify God, I must glorify God, but because he stares at the love of God from in Christ crucified. There's no greater love for this than he who lays down his life for a friend. And now in Christ, we are friends of God. And God will get the glory in the church because he will glorify his son. One day, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So Christ will get the glory in the end. And because we are united with Christ, we will be glorified with him. And that's what it says here. To him, you notice that, to him be the glory in the church. So the church will be glory one day. And in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus did not look very glorious when he hanged bloody on the cross. The church in Afghanistan doesn't look very glorious when they're being hunted by the Taliban. But rest assured, dear Christian, Christ and the church will get glory and, and he gets the glory no matter what. And then so the question is, what is this whole prayer about? If, if no matter what, he gets the glory, it's because... The apostle, by the Spirit of God, wants you to get a a part of it. He wants you to get more and more of this. He wants you to experience this glory. Oh, church, believe in the power of prayer. Believe that this is the ordained sovereign means by which God works in this world. Do not have a fatalistic view of how God works. God has said, I am going to work and I'm going to work through the prayers of the saints. Do you see the part of Paul here? He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He's powerful, just like Philip prayed for our dear sister Allison. Far more abundantly than we think he's able to do in accord with the power at work within us. You have the power, Paul says, therefore use it. You have the seed of faith. It's grown. Let it grow deeper through prayer. Lastly, I'll close with this quote from Richard Sibbs. A little thing in the hand of a giant will do great things. A little faith strengthened by Christ will work wonders. Pray that you, that you would Further understand the love of God for you in Christ. And watch what happens to your faith and trust in God. Friends, take a few moments to dwell on these truths. And then I'll close us in prayer. And we'll sing one more song. Lord, you tell us right here that you are able to do far more, exceedingly more, more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. So our prayers can never be too big if they are in accordance with the riches of your glory. So we pray, O oh God, in accordance with the riches of your glory, show us the love of Christ for each one of us. Show um, just how committed of a bridegroom he is to us, his bride. Convince us that he has loved us from eternity, from before the foundations of the world, and that he will always forever love us. Oh, Lord, would you do this now, even as we sing to you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.